Last week was an introduction to Luke. This week we're diving into the story itself. So here we go. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Infertility. It's an interesting way to start the story. Ever thought of that? That, that Luke begins this story of Jesus and the church and the gospel going to all the nations, and he begins it with a, a couple that, that's barren, that can't have children. Uh, it's, it's just sort of uh, interesting. You have Zechariah, you have Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest, and we're told that they're a blameless couple, that they live a holy life, and yet, despite their blamelessness, they haven't received the blessing of, of children which is just kind of an interesting tension that's introduced early on in the story here. Uh, infertility, of course, is an extremely uh, painful thing. It's a frustrating thing. I, I talked this week to a lady who's, uh, who's a Christian lady who's never had children. I said, you know, just tell me what it's like. You know, walk me through it. And she said, it's incredibly painful. You know, you, you feel singled out. You feel isolated. You go to people's baby showers and you try to you know, put on a happy face, but there's a part of you that, that wonders, you know, why not me? Uh, people say awkward things around you, and then they realize they said something awkward, and so they try to fix it, and that comes out even worse. And she says, Mother's Day stinks. And, you know, it's, it's just a very difficult uh, kind of thing. Um, she, she said, you know, in some ways, I kind of feel incomplete as a person. And I, I thought that was an interesting comment. You know, God makes Adam, God makes Eve. God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. So it's sort of in our code as human beings to multiply. And so if, if you can't multiply, you know, there's a part of you that's kind of like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of fulfilling this, this thing that God's hardwired into me. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Now take the pain of all that and just multiply it for a woman in the ancient world because it was even worse. Because at least in our society, a couple and a woman can have a fulfilling life without kids. I mean, there's a million things a woman can do. She can get an education. She can have a career. She can have hobbies. I mean, the, the sky's the limit for women today. But if you lived in an ancient agrarian culture, uh, a, a collectivist kind of culture like Israel, where in that kind of culture, your, your value as a human being was what you contributed to the society and to the collective. And so in a sense, as a woman in, in that kind of culture, I mean, that was the primary thing you had to contribute. So if you couldn't contribute that, you know, it wasn't just personal pain that Elizabeth would have felt. It would have been also a level of public shame and of public disgrace. So that was kind of all together in that. And I just think it's, it's a fascinating way to start this story. It was a story of barrenness. But I also think what we have here in Luke is not just an, an individual story of barrenness. I think it's also a national story of barrenness. That in a sense, Israel is barren as a nation. And in a sense, I, I think Elizabeth, and I think Luke uses Elizabeth and Zechariah here, is kind of um, representatives of faithful Israel as a nation. Because Israel had yet to bear the Messiah. The, the Christ child had not come. God had made all these promises to Israel down through the millennia about his promises to bring a Messiah, 
to bring salvation. You remember 2,000 years prior to this story, there was Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars in the sky. And boy, it's a great promise. And then God fulfills His promise to Abraham, gives him Isaac. Then there's Jacob. Then the people of Israel are born. Then they go into the promised land. And then and God, throughout this, sort of reaffirms His promises to each one. Then He comes to King David and He makes a new promise to David. He says, David, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne forever. There's going to be a Davidic king over Israel. But then Israel goes into exile and the king is taken away. And you kind of wonder, what happened to that promise? Then Israel comes out of exile. Maybe now the promises are going to be fulfilled. Not really. Israel's still under the domination of the Persians. And then in the 4th century B.C., the Greeks under Alexander the Great come in. And now in 63 B.C., the Romans come in and take over. And so for all these years, Israel still hasn't received the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament and the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And it's this great period of blessing. It's like, God, where is it? Where is it? It feels like Israel is barren. That Israel has not given birth to that child. Like in Isaiah chapter 9, remember that messianic prophecy? We studied it when we studied Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Where's that kid? Where is he? And so so I think there's a, a sort of a subtext in this story. It's not only the story of of um, Elizabeth and Zechariah's barrenness and infertility, if you want to call it that, but also the, the barrenness of Israel to produce this child, to produce the salvation of God that's been promised. In fact, it's been 400 years, just like you have this elderly couple that has been a long time since they even had the possibility of having kids. You have this nation. It's been 400 years since a prophet spoke to Israel. Because right, right now it's about, right about the turn of the, the, the times, it's about, you know, 5, 6 B.C. when the story takes place. The last time a prophet was in Israel was in the mid-400s B.C. with Malachi. So it's been 400 years since God's even said a word to Israel. This long period of silence. And you kind of wonder, God, did, did all of it come to nothing? Has the womb of Israel just dried up and failed to produce that which, which God has designed? Where are the plans of God? Where are the purposes of God? And so I think this story is really about the plans and purposes of God. Do God's plans fail? Can God's purposes and can God's word to us, can it be blocked and and short-circuited like that? And so it's a twofold story of barrenness. Well, with that in mind, let's pick up the story in verse 8. It says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty. He was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So just to kind of paint the picture for you here, Zechariah, he's a priest, remember we read that, and he's now in Jerusalem doing his priestly duties. Uh, In those days, the priests in Israel were divided into 24 divisions, So uh, each division would go to Jerusalem once a week to serve in the temple and to serve in Jerusalem. And they would do that like twice a year. So two times a year you'd go and sort of do your your week-long duty. And so Zechariah goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. And uh, he has the the unique honor of going into the temple to serve. And this is a great honor. I mean, it's not like a church building where anyone can walk in the building. I mean, nobody got to go in the temple. There were guards there who would kill you 
if you tried to just rush into the temple. This is a sacred place. And, and even if you were a priest, you couldn't just go walking into the temple. You had to have uh, a special permission to go in. So what they would do is, during the week when you were there, if you were one of the priests who was on the temple side of the duty, they had a morning and an evening sacrifice. And, and so they'd cast a lot, and if the lot fell on you, sort of like casting a die, then you were the lucky one, the, the chosen one, who got to go into the temple. And what you would do is you'd go into that sacred place that no one else could go into, and stand before the curtain that separated the sacred place from the most sacred place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and you got to stand there and offer incense on the altar of incense. And the incense, of course, kind of symbolizes the, the prayers of God's people going up before the throne of God. So here's this beautiful picture of the people are outside praying. And here's Zechariah. He gets this unique opportunity, maybe the only time in his life, who knows, but he gets to go up to the altar of incense and burn incense on the altar and offer it to God. And that's when it happens. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty terrifying. Yeah. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son in order to give him the name John. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I was kind of thinking, like, wonder when the last time he prayed that prayer. <laughs> Probably about when his wife started having hot flashes, then it's like, well, it's over. He's like, Might as well stop praying this prayer, you know. What's the point now? So, so, so he's, you know, it, I'm guessing it's been a long time since he's actually prayed, Lord, give me a child. And he is old now. The story tells us he's advanced in years. They're past childbearing years. And this angel appears and says, guess what? Good news, your prayer is answered. Your wife's going to have a kid. You're going to name him John. And so already, his, his prayers are being answered. But remember, there's more than just his prayers here. He's also offering up the prayers for the nation. The nation is outside praying. That The priests are outside praying, it tells us in verse 10. And so there's a sense in which there's a larger story of the prayers being offered up. And so we find here in the story that this child is going to be born is not only an answer to their prayers, he's also the answer to the nation's prayers. This child is not only the end of Elizabeth's barrenness, he's also going to be the end of Israel's barrenness. That God's promises for, is for Elizabeth are going to be the fulfillment of God's promises for all of Israel and thus for all the world. So look at verse uh, 14. Let me tell you about this kid, the angel says. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Oh, okay, so this kid is going to be more than just, thank you, God, for giving me a kid. I mean, there's, there's a purpose for this kid. He has a, a greater purpose. Verse 15, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Now, you know, what's that all about? And, and the answer is not because he's John the Baptist, okay? This, that's a misconception. Um, the reason is because he's, he's actually being set apart as a Nazarite. Uh, a Nazarite. If you're familiar with this in the Old Testament, when God was giving his commands to Moses, he set up sort of a special category of servant called a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was a person who took a special vow of consecration to God for a certain time period and for a special purpose. You know, kind of like someone might become like a nun or a priest today. It's sort of like sequestering themselves and setting themselves apart for special work. Although in this case, it wasn't necessarily for your whole life. You could take a Nazarite vow for, you know, six months or for a year or whatever it was. But you'd set yourself apart. 
And two of the qualifications to kind of identify yourself as one of these Nazarites is you, you couldn't drink a fermented drink, which in the ancient world, where that's one of the primary things you drink, very difficult. You know, they didn't have Evian bottled water or whatever. I mean, it's, wine was just kind of what you drank. as a more watered-down version of wine we drink today. So, so you're kind of really cutting yourself off from normal food and beverage. And you also let your hair grow. And so as long as you're Nazarite, you know, it just, it just gets long, and, you know, dreadlocks, whatever. It just goes long, and you get real hairy. And, and, and so that way you kind of set yourself off from society. So we're already learning now that this John is going to be born. He's not just the answer to their prayers. He's going to be a special guy. He's going to be set apart as a Nazarite for his entire life. His entire life is going to be a Nazarite. Then it says in verse 15, He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Oh, it's even better than that. He's going to be a prophet. Finally, after 400 years, God's raising up another prophet. You know, the last one we heard from was Malachi. And now it's 400 years, and where's the prophet of God? Who's going to speak for God? And suddenly a prophet is being raised up. I mean, this is even better. But then the news even gets better in verse 17. Not just any prophet, but a specific prophet, verse 17. It says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we might read that verse and go, okay, he's coming to you know, get the people ready. But, you know, we might just sort of read over it. But if you were a Jew at that time, certainly if you were Zechariah and you read those words, I mean, your Old Testament promise antenna would have went, you know, whoa, this is a huge thing the angel just said. That little phrase there, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's just a loaded, loaded statement. And if you were an Israelite or a Jew in those days, you would have been like, whoa, what? The Elijah is coming? You see, there's these prophecies in the Old Testament that before the Messiah comes, before the kingdom of God is, uh, uh, intrudes into this world, before God's salvation comes, there's going to be this forerunner to get people ready, and he's going to be kind of like a second Elijah, a second prophet Elijah. Let me just show you one of those prophecies. It's pretty cool. You've got to read it. Put a bookmark here in Luke. Put your finger there. We're going to come back. And turn over to Malachi chapter 3, which is on page 950 in the Pew Bible. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament in in the way the books are ordered in the English Bible. Malachi chapter 3, page 950. We'll come back to Luke. I just want to read two of those prophecies where before the Lord comes and fulfills His promises to His people and brings salvation to the world, there's going to be this like Elijah figure who precedes Him. So look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. God says, See... I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's the messenger. Then suddenly the Lord, God himself you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Or look over at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Here's the Elijah language. God says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So there's this expectation that before the Messiah comes, there's going to be this Elijah figure. You know, uh, Jews today, when they celebrate the Passover, they, they sort of carry on this Elijah tradition. If you're sort of familiar with the Jewish Passover, sometimes what's done is, is a cup of wine is put out near the end of the Passover meal. It's called the Elijah cup. 
And a little chair is brought sometimes. It's the, the Elijah chair. And the door is opened. It's sort of be like, all right, Elijah, come in. And it's this, it's this ritual that, that's remembering there needs to be this Elijah figure. And then when he comes, the, the time of the Messiah will come. And, and Jews today still wait for, some Jews today still wait for that Elijah figure. When is he going to come and herald the beginning of God's plans of salvation? So now I'll go back to Luke. What Luke is saying, or rather what the angel is saying to Zechariah, is not just you have a special son, and not just this son is going to be a prophet in Nazarite. This son is the Elijah that we've been waiting for for 400 years. He's finally here. The Messianic age is going to begin. I mean, this is just huge. God's promises never fail. That's the message here. The plans of God are never thwarted. Are you sure, God? I mean, because, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I mean, they're old and they haven't ever been able to have kids. <laughs> if God says you're going to have a kid, you're going to have a kid. End of story. Just like he said to Abraham and Sarah, you know, they didn't believe him. Sarah laughed. And in fact, there's a lot of parallels between this story and Abraham and Sarah. Go ahead and back and read that. It's very interesting. But, but God used that elderly, barren couple to birth his covenant promises and now they're going to be fulfilled and he's using another elderly barren couple just to prove that he can do it. You say, are you really going to use Israel, God? I mean, look, they're underneath the dominion of the Romans. It's been quiet for 400 years. Really, God? Yep, if God says he's going to accomplish these promises, if God said he was going to do it to Abraham and he told David and he told Isaiah and Malachi and all these people in the Old Testament, then he's going to do it. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing is impossible for God. God's plans are always fulfilled. Nothing can stop the purposes of God in the world. God's plans and purposes are the only sure thing there is. Everything else cannot be trusted. Only God can be trusted 100% completely. Maybe it is that God chooses impossible situations in which to do His work so that we might have no question in our minds that it's God who did it. Maybe that's why God throughout his Old Testament story, loves to pick infertile couples to give them special children to advance the story. So that way, you can say, wow, this must have been God. Maybe that's why God would use Israel. I mean, you think about it. Israel is, Israel is a travesty. I mean, there's no other way to say it. You read the Old Testament story of the people of Israel, it's a travesty. And there's some high points along the way. There's some faithfulness here and there. There's some moments of reversal. But the general story of the people of Israel is just disobedience, rebellion, hostility against God, rejecting His Word, until finally God says, well, that's it, and He sends them to exile. And even when they come out of exile, they still haven't gotten it. And so you say, God, that's your plan? Is this nation? I mean, this, this is just a, a peasant nation, and they're disobedient to you, even though you've shown up to them. That's really how you're going to bring salvation to the world? God says, yeah. I'm going to birth my Messiah through this broken, sinful people. Because that's how God does it. He loves to take the impossible situation and then work out His promises through it so that we can all stand back and say, whoa, that was God. Definitely God. So that He receives all the glory and we receive the joy of His blessings. And yet, for some reason, I still doubt the promises of God. <laughs> Even though I know all this and I can stand up here and just preach it to you, and I know what I'm saying is true, yet somehow, when it comes to my own life, I don't trust the promises of God. I mean, what is wrong with me? He gives me so many promises in His Word. I have the Word of God, just as sure as Zechariah did. It's right here. I can read His promises, and yet I, 
I doubt them. I doubt them just like Zechariah did. Look at Zechariah in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is... He doesn't want to say old. She's well along in years, so, you know. <laughs> you know, this is not going to make, this make a lot of sense, God. How can this be? Now, now when he says, how can this be, he's, it's not just kind of a, a query for information. It's really he's asking for a sign. This is a statement of, of disbelief. Because it says literally in Greek, according to what can I know that this will take place? In other words, give me some, some proof. Give me an evidence. Give me a sign so that I can know that what you're saying is actually going to be. So it's not just kind of like, well, I don't understand God. It's more like, really? And look how old I am. My wife, you know, she's advanced in years too. And, you know, really? <laughs> it's, it's unbelief. There's this tone behind it of disbelief in the promises of God. And I'm the same way. I, I just have a struggle believing the promises of God. So look at uh, the angel, what he says in verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel, dude. <laughs> dude is in the original Greek, by the way. <laughs> I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Literally in Greek, it's, I've been sent to evangelize you. It's the same word for, for evangelism. I've been sent to preach the gospel to you, to tell you the good news that's about to take place. Verse 20, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Hey, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Boop. No talking, zip it, until nine months are over. <laughs> There's your sign. There's your sign, right? Uh, that's it. And so, you know, Elizabeth gets a double blessing now. Not only does she, <laughs> does she have a child, but now for nine months all her husband can do is just listen. You know, it's wonderful. <laughs> Every woman's dream is being fulfilled. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. The word came true. Verse 23, When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The word came true. That's the point. The word comes true. Whatever God says comes true. And yet we, I doubt, I, I doubt the words of God for some reason. I know they're true, and yet when it comes to acting on them and responding in faith, I just waffle so many times. We look at the world around us and we get so frustrated. We, we see this world that's just, it's just crazy. You know, you watch the news, you hear about more people being bombed in Afghanistan or Iraq, these crazy suicide bombers who've been duped by Satan to blow up other people. I mean, it's just, it's evil. It's horrible. And we read about the nuclear brinkmanship that's going on between, uh, you know, North Korea and Iran and, and our country. And that's just scary. I mean, if, if nuclear weapons get in the hands of the wrong people, I mean, you know, it's going to be horrible. It's terrifying, really. Uh, it's, I think it's even scarier in some ways than the period of the Cold War because at least there's the whole deterrence thing. I mean, there's no deterrence here. It's just a scary situation. Gas prices are going up. I mean, you just... It's easy to just watch the news or read the newspaper and be like, you know, forget it. 
I'm just going to go rent a video and do a retreat into my own little world and do my hobby and do my work and mow my lawn or whatever it is you do. And just you forget worrying about the world. It's, it's all ruined. I mean, how can we care? It's just so messed up. What can be done? But we need to remember the promises of God. That God has a purpose for the world and it's to preach His gospel and to win disciples for Christ of all nations. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28? The very end of the book of Matthew before He went back up to heaven. He said to His disciples, I love this line, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Jesus says, I have all authority over the world. Therefore, here's what we need to do in response, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So we need to go out there and make disciples and preach the gospel, even though it appears to our, our visual eyes, like Zechariah, he believed in his circumstances. Yeah, I'm old. And we look out and we say, the world's messed up. But God has a plan. And in fact, that command to go preach the gospel to us is the same plan that was being worked out in the time of John. It's not a different plan. It's just the same plan a little further down the road. God had promised the Messiah would come. And then John comes and heralds the birth of the Messiah. Then the Messiah Jesus comes. And then the church is launched. And we're part of the same narrative. We're in that same story. We're still taking the gospel to the whole world. And so rather than just kind of retreating into a little hole of apathy, we need to, to reach out to the world. Despite what we're seeing with our eyes on TV, we need to believe the promises of God. That God is establishing His kingdom in the world through the preaching of the gospel. You're not going to hear about what he's doing on CNN. You're not going to see it on O'Reilly. It's not going to be on MSNBC. But it's happening nonetheless. Because God is in control and his plans cannot be thwarted. There's a... Uh, I got a newsletter this week from uh, the Thompsons. If you remember the Thompsons, they're missionaries. We just began to support at the church. New missionaries to our church. And uh, they're a nice couple, young couple, two little kids. And they went to Mombasa, Kenya. Uh, and Mombasa is a highly Muslim area of Kenya. You know, it's pretty amazing. There's, there's couples going over there, and you kind of look at it, you're like, you guys are crazy. This is a fool's errand. You, know, you look at this couple, and they're just, I mean, they're just totally a white bread suburban couple. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They Ken and Barbie, and they're two little kids. And they're going over there to this Muslim area in Kenya. I mean, it's like, what are you thinking? How, why would you do this? Because they believe in the promises of God more than in what their eyes and, and human sense of reality would tell them. And if God says He's in control of Mombasa and that He wants the gospel preached there and there's going to be some disciples to be made there, well, then you know what? They're going to go to Mombasa. That's, that's faith in the promises of God. And you know, God's not only Lord of Mombasa, Jesus is also Lord of Hingham, Weymouth, Hanover, Marshfield, and wherever town it is you live. Uh, you know, if, if you want to be discouraged about evangelism, you don't have to go to Mombasa. You could stay right here on the South Shore and be plenty discouraged because it's a difficult place to share your faith. New England's a difficult place. People come from other parts of the country. We're going to plant a church in New England. You know, two years later, the Lord's calling me somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's just a very difficult place to do ministry and, and to preach the gospel. It's very frustrating. And it's easy for us to be like, forget it. You know, I'm beating my head against the wall. Forget it. I'm not going to worry about my neighbors. I'm not going to worry about my friends. I, um, we've lived in our neighborhood, I think about seven or maybe it's eight years now, this summer. And, and I'll tell you, it, it was hard. I mean, our neighborhood, people did not come over with apple pies. 
It was not a welcoming kind of thing. I know, surprise, but it didn't happen. Uh, and, and, you know, and for a while there, a couple of things happened in our experience there that kind of gave us a sense that we were, people were really kind of keeping us at arm's length. Maybe they knew I was a pastor and it freaked them out. I mean, you know, it's kind of understandable. But whatever. I mean, it was just very cold and very hard. And I, I know for a while there, I was, just, I was just very bitter. I was just kind of embittered against my neighbors. I was just like, you know, forget it. There's no hope. This, this place is lost. I'm just going to church and do my work and my ministry. And, you know, forget these people. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like a year and a half ago, two years ago. I mean, there wasn't a bright light or something, but just like, just a change in my mind. And God obviously hasn't given up on me. And he just kind of changed my heart. And I said, I'm just going to start praying for these people. And so when I'd go out on my prayer walks, you know, I, some of you know I prayer walk. It's not because I'm more spiritual. It's just because if I sit still and pray, I fall asleep. Like, every time. So the only way I've ever been able to pray consistently is I have to walk around. I mean, that's how pathetic I am. So, uh, so I, uh, or peripathetic, as the case may be. So I, I go out, I go out for these prayer walks, and um, and I just walk them down my neighborhood. I just start praying for houses. And I'll tell you, man, the last like year, year and a half, I've had so many more open doors to have a little conversation here. The summer I went over to a guy's house, and we just talked about spiritual things over dinner. A little conversation there. Guys are building, you know, some guys are working on an addition on my house, and all these Christian guys, everyone drives by and they're like, who are these guys? They're amazing. They work so hard. I've never seen anyone build so quickly. And I get to say, yeah, there's a bunch of great Christian guys. And they love the Lord. And man, they have a great work ethic. And really, wow. You know, so, just amazing. You know? and, and so you just have to keep praying. Has anyone in my neighborhood come to Christ yet? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know their hearts. But man, I just have to believe that Jesus is Lord of my street. And I just have to keep, whenever I have the opportunity, touching base with people, reaching out to them, sharing the love of Christ with them. And you know, God will do His work in His time. We have to believe the promises of God. We have to believe the promises of God for our church. You know, our church is growing. We, we, we need more space. And I know you're frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm very frustrated with, with our process before the town. I'm frustrated by the resistance of the neighbors. I'm like, you know, what's your big deal? It's a church, you know? What's wrong with the church growing? And so, you know, I just get, ah, oh, irritated. And I have to just step back and say, do I believe that this is the Lord's work? Do I believe that God is the one who's doing this work? And, and so why am I sort of responding in human ways of anger and frustration? I, I just need to believe that if this is God's work, God's going to provide for this work. I don't know what that looks like. I wish I knew. People ask me, did you hear from God in your sabbatical about the church building? <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish I could come back and say, I had a vision and we're going to do this, but... I, I got nothing on that, on that issue. I got nothing. I got other things. I didn't, I didn't hear anything on that. I just think God's just calling us to, to be faithful. He's the one who's going to provide. And so I just, uh, I have to keep telling myself that because I just get so you know, negative when I start thinking about that whole issue. But I've got to believe the promises of God. I can't believe in, that, that the town boards and, and people around us have the final say. This is Christ's church. He's the one in charge. And what about our personal lives? Do you ever get frustrated about the progress of God's kingdom in your own heart? Yeah, I sure do. I look at the evidence again. I look at the things that are in front of me, the physical things, and you know, it's like, I've been a Christian how many years? And I just said, what? <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting here in church and I'm thinking, what? I had what thought? I have what attitude and I'm a Christian? I call myself a Christian and I did that? I just think, you know, sometimes I look at the evidence of my life and in, in my darker moments I just wonder... God, are you still there? Is, is, are we still on with this whole sanctification thing? Am I making any progress? And, and I want to just throw my hands up. And that's again where I've got to go back and believe the promises of God. Like you guys just studied Philippians recently, didn't you? Yeah, Philippians 1.6. It 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that if you are truly saved and born again, you will make it. God is at work in you. And so we have to, I have to say, no, I can't look at what I've done. I have to look at God's power, which is greater than my sin. And I have to believe that God is going to be at work in me. And that's where my faith is. Remember, I sat with a man once, uh, and uh, he was just so discouraged at his sin. He was depressed. But, but it was more than just kind of a chemical thing. It was really a spiritual depression. He was depressed at, at his life and, and his failure, from his perspective, to follow God's commands. And I remember he was just sitting there. I was talking to him. He wouldn't look at me. He just had his head down, and he was just, it was, it was like you just see the weight on him. He was bent over, and we just kind of mumble, talking very slowly. He would say, I've blown it. I've gone too far. I've not tried. I'm beyond saving at this point. And just the heaviness of that, just weighing him down as he just came face to face with his failures as a person, as a Christian. And so, you know, how do you counsel a person like that? And I just try to bring scripture into his life. And you know, one of the scriptures I quoted for him was I said, it says in the Bible, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that the promises of God through John the Baptist and through Jesus and the church are for you too. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, whoever. I don't care what your rap sheet is. I don't care what crimes you've perpetrated. I don't care what violations you've committed. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And so what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the failures of my life and my sinfulness which reaches to the heavens? Or am I going to believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners? And that's what I said to this guy. I said, it's not about your righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness and clinging to what Jesus has done for you. And that's what we're celebrating here at the communion table. Today's a communion Sunday. And at communion, we're celebrating what Jesus has done for us. Our hope as Christians is not in our ability to try hard. Our hope as Christians is completely in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The only reason I have hope before God, the only reason I can stand up here before you and preach to you is because I know that Christ is my righteousness, that Jesus' blood has washed away my sin, and that His righteousness covers me and makes me acceptable to God. And so as we come to the communion table, we come in faith celebrating what God has done for us. That, that bread we're about to eat symbolizes His body, which was broken on the cross. The cup we're about to drink symbolizes His blood that was shed on the cross. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup... What we're symbolically saying is, I believe in Jesus' word, that he can save sinners. And so we invite you to share in this with us. Even if you're not a member of our church, you can have communion with us. The only caveat I say is you have to know Christ. Because the point of eating the things is, is to say, I trust in Christ for my righteousness and for my salvation. And so can I have the elders of the church join me here at the communion table? As we remember when Christ was crucified for our salvation. And we remember the night before Jesus went to the cross, He took some of the unleavened matzah bread that they eat during Passover and He, he broke it. And He gave this matzah bread a new meaning. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And uh, John Sargent, brother, could you uh, give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Lord, we have no hope. We have no hope in ourselves. 
hope of salvation of heaven rests in you. And Lord, we will be eating this bread is your broken body that was sacrificed for us. We give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. Thank you for being with us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. As the elders distribute these things, I want us to take some time for just confession of sin. As the elders are distributing these elements, I want you to take this time to pray silently. And um, as you pray, just let's confess the sin in our lives, specifically the sin of unbelief. Where are we doubting the promises of God? That's a sin, to, to not believe. So let's believe. Let's, let's confess that to God. And if there's any other sin in your life, just bring it to the Lord now. Let's just spend some time being honest before Him about where we're at spiritually. confess the barrenness of my my life how I've failed to bring forward the good works that you require the thoughts that I've thought the attitudes that I've copped the, the things I've said the things I've done Lord that have been displeasing to you and Lord forgive me for the sin of unbelief of not believing what your word says and of shrinking back into apathy instead of surging forward Lord in faith to do what you call me to do
want us to join in a prayer of corporate confession of sin and trust in God. It'll be up here on the overhead. It's a beautiful prayer adopted from a book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. And uh, let's pray this together as we come to communion. O Lord, when Thou wouldst guide me, I control myself. When Thou wouldst take care of me, I suffice myself. When I should depend on Thy providings, I supply myself. When I should submit to Thy providence, I follow my will. When I should study, love, honor, trust Thee, I serve myself. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy, nor my own Christ to restore my joy, nor my own spirit to teach, guide, rule me. Take away my roving eye, curious ear, greedy appetite, lustful heart. Then take me to the cross and leave me there. Let's eat together. Then we remember at the end of the communion meal, the Passover meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave it a new symbolic meaning. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And can I ask the elders to join us again? And uh, Rick, good enough, would you give thanks for Jesus' shed blood on the cross? Father God, we come before you as humbly as we know how, thanking you and praising you for the life that you've given us in Jesus. Father, we have hard hearts, and we ask that you soften them, that we, uh, that you put your spirit in place of our own hearts that are hard and, and full of self-confidence and self-will, and we ask that your will be um, put there and that our lives be uh, refreshed in you and in your spirit, Father, as we attempt to serve you in uh, the only way that you would want us to, Father, and that is through self-denial. And Father, we thank you for your uh, son's shed blood that uh, through that sacrifice that he uh, made for us that we are seen by you as pure and holy. And Father, help us to live as pure and holy as uh, lives as, as we can. And, and Father, help us again to uh, seek your will and move our wills to the side. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name.
Let's together come before the throne of God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me.
anything at all. Let them pray with you. If you'd like to know what it means to call upon the Lord and have Christ in your life, I mean, come on up after the service. I'd love to talk with you. They'd love to talk to you and pray with you and share with you how to do that. And now as you stand, and let me close the service in prayer. Father, send us out with a fresh faith in your promises. Help us to see that you are the great and awesome one, that this world is nothing compared to you. Help us to see our circumstances as small and your power is awesome. Lord, help us to go forward with a sense of your forgiveness. Lord, plant your kiss upon our forehead. Let us know that, that we are forgiven in Christ, that we are your children clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And may that be the foundation from which we live a holy life. And so, Lord, send your people out into a world that needs to hear the message. Send us out like John to prepare the way before you, to proclaim that you are here and that people can turn to you and be saved. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.